You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So the story goes, and it's just kind of adding to the legend of James Garfield, is that as a professor of the classics, which he was, that he could write sentences with one hand in Greek and then with the other hand in Latin at the same time on the blackboard. And that must have been a sight to see. Except we don't really have verification of it. In fact, James Garfield's son heard so much about rumors that he could do this that he asked around and tried to find out if it was true and no one could verify it. But what we do know is that he used both hands in writing. Yeah, so there were other uh, facts, obscure facts about presidents that I didn't get a chance to share with Jeremy. One is that only eight presidents have been left-handed. But the interesting thing, a good proportion of recent presidents have been left-handed. This in, so uh, including Biden, only eight, Barack Obama, Herbert Hoover, Harry Truman, Gerald Ford, Bill Clinton, and George H.W. Bush, all left-handed. Reagan and James Garfield wrote with both hands. What's the reason for this? Well, we could make all types of uh, talk about, you know, right hand or left hand or neuroscience or things like this, but some of it is the fact that in the past, those um, school students who were left-handed were actually forced by the school teachers to write with their right. This is the case with Ronald Reagan. He's left-handed, but he's ambidextrous because he was forced to write with his right hand in school. And in a lot of cases, there may be more left-handed presidents than we are aware of, but it was kind of um, trained out of them, if you will, by the school system. Speaking of schools, another obscure fact about presidents, a Millard Fillmore married his teacher, Abigail Powers. Uh, Now, Fillmore was 19, and Abigail Powers Fillmore was 21, so it wasn't a big gap. She kept on teaching, even after their marriage, and Millard Fillmore at the time wasn't earning enough as a local lawyer. Sadly, Abigail Powers Fillmore was sick in the White House and actually dies the day of Franklin Pierce's inauguration. So right as the Fillmores are watching Pierce be sworn in, it's a cold day, and uh, Abigail Powers Fillmore is lost. Franklin Pierce, as an ex-president, was greeted by a mob at his house. This is after Abraham Lincoln was shot. And Pierce was never seen as a great supporter 
of the Civil War. I mean, he mouthed support for it, but there were letters discovered in Jefferson Davis's captured home from Franklin Pierce saying he'd never support this vile war. That didn't go over well in the Union. And in Concord, New Hampshire, when Lincoln was assassinated, there were crowds that were going around, kind of like a a social mob, if you will, both sharing grief uh, about what had happened, but also making sure that people had their flags up to honor Lincoln's life and to honor the Union. They asked of Franklin Pierce where his flag was. He came out and says, It is not necessary for me to show my devotion to the Republic, to the Stars and Stripes. He cited that his father had served in the Revolution, that he had served, or his grandfather had served in the Revolution. He had served in the Mexican War, and then he had served as president. Um, Whether or not the crowd was convinced or not, they did give three cheers and leave. Another obscure fact, uh, if I needed it, would have been that John Adams and Thomas Jefferson went together when they were early ambassadors of the United States and in Great Britain to see Shakespeare's grave. They chopped a piece of Shakespeare's chair and took it as a souvenir, and uh, presumably they were allowed to do this. (laughs) This was a time when they were friends. We talked a bit about ex-presidents on that cast, and I was really glad to have Jeremy Anderberg on there. There was one story from George McClellan's book that could have brought up. I wasn't sure if we were going to do a top 10, a top 5. Top 8 is actually kind of cool. Everybody does top 10, so I like top 8. Top 8 with one bonus one, which really made it a top nine obscure stories about presidents. So I had a bunch of them. And one was that um, we're talking about ex-presidents, how Woodrow Wilson had angered Grover Cleveland. Um, And yes, the two did know each other because Grover Cleveland as an ex-president was on the board of directors of Princeton, the board of trustees of Princeton College, while Woodrow Wilson was the president. Woodrow Wilson had this very complicated reform plan that a lot of people at Princeton didn't like. And when you say people at Princeton didn't like, that means alumni who are still very involved in the school and that he would change the way, uh, manner of instruction and how people were housed and um, was not a popular program, but it's what Woodrow Wilson wanted. And Cleveland was against it. Cleveland was traveling and he asked whether Wilson was going to bring it up. And Woodrow Wilson said, no, it's not going to come up in the next meeting. Then, knowing he wouldn't have Grover Cleveland's vote, he brought it up in the meeting and had enough votes to pass. And Grover Cleveland never forgave him for that. I mean, he didn't have too many years left in his life. Grover Cleveland is an ex-president for Theodore Roosevelt. And, um, you know, he and Roosevelt do get along. In When Roosevelt was in the New York legislature... Grover Cleveland was governor, and the two worked together on New York State's reform bill. It, Grover Cleveland, as governor, could not get the votes of all the Democrats. And so Theodore Roosevelt, who was at a very young age leading the Republicans in the New York State Assembly, was able to deliver the votes on civil service reform for Grover Cleveland. So the two had worked together, and um, he would honor him and put him on a few committees when Theodore Roosevelt became president. He dies in June of 1908 at his funeral, 
in Princeton, New Jersey, is where he's buried. President Roosevelt, Governor Fort of New Jersey, Hughes of New York, Hoke Smith of Georgia, former members of President Cleveland's cabinet are there. The burial of the ex-president Grover Cleveland's funeral marked by simplicity and absence of pomp. Notable gathering. Along the streets from the house to the cemetery, National Guardsmen mounted and on foot policed the way. As President Roosevelt passed through the gate leading from the Westland grounds, the militiamen presented arms, and the President doffed his hat in recognition. pallbearers, six on either side of the hearse, marched with a procession as it wended its way slowly down Bayard Lane to Nassau Street and on along the main thoroughfare of the town. Business had been suspended during the afternoon and curtains were drawn in many of the Princeton houses. The silent crowd stood with bared heads as the procession passed along into Van Venter Avenue, and the old bell in the tower of old Nassau had tolled mournfully. Hi, it's Bruce. Listen, we all know the news headlines are full of wild stories, like how the world is tipping towards authoritarianism, all while somehow, simultaneously, freezing, flooding, and on fire. It's a lot to take in. But what if, instead of being on the brink of disaster, we're actually on the cusp of a better world? If I've got your attention, then I highly recommend tuning to a podcast that offers a weekly dose of optimistic ideas from smart people. What Could Go Right is the acclaimed news podcast from the Progress Network. Zachary Carabell and Emma Varvalukas dive into the biggest news and most pressing topics of our time, from climate change to politics, and make the case for a brighter future. Season 5 features fascinating guests like democracy scholar Yesha Munk on the hidden perils of identity politics, and NPR anchor Steve Inskeep about the importance of talking to people who differ from you, and what Abe Lincoln learned from those conversations that helped him unify the country. It's time to ditch the doom-scrolling polarization and start focusing on some of the things going right. So check out What Could Go Right wherever you listen to podcasts. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. 
and you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, in the past two podcasts, I talked a bit about Congress. One, I talked about George B. McClellan Jr., and I had been reading his biography uh, this year, and also, and last year, and also, we talked about the Congress in the 1890s in the episode about We Got Problems, in that I was talking about Speaker Reed. So I thought I'd read a little bit more from George B. McClellan Jr.'s book about just, you know, what it's like to be a congressman, what it was like in the 1890s. McClellan, you'll remember, he's the son of the Union general who, of course, ran as the party's presidential candidate, his father did, in 1864, so he's a Democrat. When I served in the House, the sectional lines between North and South were very sharply drawn. I began my service just 30 years after Appomattox and found among my fellow members a great many who had been soldiers of the Confederacy. The horrors of Reconstruction had only ended some 18 years before and were a vivid and bitter memory in the heart of every Southern representative. Unlike the Scots, who gloried in being called rebels, the Southerners in Congress violently objected to having the Civil War referred to as the War of the Rebellion. They themselves always spoke of it as a war between the states, and from time to time one or another of them would make a little futile effort to have that expression substituted for the official designation, the Civil War. They all regarded Republicans as possible ex-carpetbaggers and called them radicals or damned Yankees. So we're arguing about statues these days. In the 1890s, they were still figuring out what to call the Civil War. The Democratic Party in the House was then, as it always has been, in the Civil War until lately, absolutely in the control of the South. Randall and Rainey, Northern men, were elected Speaker by the grace of the South, and occasionally a Northern man has reached an important chairmanship. But in the vast majority of cases, when the Democrats have been control of the House, the speakership and all the important chairmanships have been filled by Southern men. In the same way, Southern policies have until lately usually dominated the Democrats in Congress. The Southern prejudice against Republicans is reflected in the attitude of the average Southern congressman towards the Northern Democrats. I soon found that we were tolerated, but not loved. So even within his own party, he's not a Republican. He's still getting a little skepticism from the Southern Democrats. The South has been glad enough to use the North in furthering Southern policies and Southern schemes. Southern men have been glad enough to migrate to New York and carpetbag in the most approved way and to organize and utilize the Southern vote for all it is worth in forcing New York leaders to give offices to Southerners. On the other hand, The South, for some not very apparent reason, has looked down on the North, expected Northern Democrats to do its bidding, and in Congress, given them only grudging recognition. Legislation affecting New York has always been difficult to obtain, and has required for its success a great amount of log rolling. Think of that as pork. To induce Congress to pay the deficit of the Buffalo Exposition due to the McKinley murder, you'll remember William McKinley was assassinated 1901, in Buffalo during an exposition, which then, of course, got canceled at great expense to the city of Buffalo 
Our delegation had to vote for similar legislation in behalf of state expositions in the states of Washington and North Carolina. No assassination had taken place there. The typical Southerners, I knew him in Congress 40 years ago, had in his outlook as parochial as parochial as any man in the United States. For him, the world was bounded by the Mason-Dixon line. South of that line were white men. For the black man, he uses another term I won't use, did not count. To the north of that line, and by the way, when he's using that term, he's using it in quotes, talking about the way the other Southern Democrat members say it. To the north of that line and beyond were nothing but barbarians. If he failed to recognize that great truth, he would not be reelected. I remember Jesse Stallings of Alabama saying to me, I wish that I could see Europe. Why don't you go, I replied. If it were known that I had gone abroad in my district, safe as it seems, would turn me down. The average Southerner's attitude on black citizens is to a northerner difficult to understand. He regards them as a man belonging to an inferior race, to be kindly treated, but to be treated as he was in the slave days. It is claimed by southerners, at least by those in the deep south, that the that they can only be kept in subjug- subjugation by the fear of lynching. I've often been told by Southerners living on plantations that they never left their women folk at home without the greatest anxiety. This is how he's describing the Southerners are saying this. In the 56th Congress, in the 56th Congress, there were two black members, both from North Carolina, named Murray and White. White and Murray always lunched by themselves at a little table in the corner of the restaurant. There was great excitement one day among the Southerners because a white member had been seen lunching at the same table with them. The most bloodthirsty plans were discussed, and it was even suggested that a Democrat should be chosen to tweak the nose of the offender. Fortunately, for the peace of the House, nothing ever came of it. The occasional white Republicans who came to the House from Southern states were treated very much as black congressmen would be themselves, since they were elected largely by the votes of black citizens. Even Richmond Pearson from North Carolina, very fine fellow and a Princeton man, was sent to Coventry by his fellow Southerners. The Southerners insist, as they did in slave days, that this question is a peculiar institution to be dealt with by the South in its own way without the impertinent interference of the North. So McClellan writes, In my day, the Southerners still talk loudly of affairs of honor. And Joe Bailey, who's a congressman, once sent Speaker Reed a challenge, this we talked about on the podcast, called a cartel for some fancied slight. Reed walked up to Bailey and said, Joe, don't be a damn fool. That ended the affair. I was sitting in the one day in the Speaker's lobby with a half dozen Southerners who were telling me of affairs of honors within their experience. When there strolled a Republican member from Ohio, William B. Shattuck, who had made some study of dueling in the South. He listened for a while and then said, Can any of you fellows tell me of any real, honest-to-goodness duel of which you have personal knowledge? The Southern members at once, with one accord, began to tell of affairs of honor with which they were familiar. Shattuck, as each story was told, asked very searching questions and said as he walked away, I noticed that in every case you fellows have mentioned, the victim was shot in the back or was potted from behind an ash barrel, a lamppost, or a tree. You haven't told me, and you can't tell me, of an actual duel in which both men stood up 
with equal chances and fired at each other. So writes uh, McClellan. I was going to include that in the We Got Problems episode, but I just had too much in there. That was a pretty long episode as it is. Struggled a bit with the We Got Problems episode. We Got Problems, we've always had problems. But I do think that's completely true, and that's what history tells you. People should spend more time thinking and reading about history than they do thinking and reading about the news. Yes, it appears on the surface that the news affects you more now, but it really doesn't. The news goes away. It goes away quickly. It fades. We spend way too much time on our phones and TV just kind of like doom scrolling. That's a great word. But we do it on TV as well. I think we've always been doom scrolling even before social media. I mean, you got to keep up with the news. But I think the extent to which we do it today is 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 bonkers, really. <laughs> so we got problems. We've always had problems. Um, it's not to downplay. And I think, you know, one of the questions I got is, well, you said that cancel culture doesn't matter. And I said, look, in an extreme form, we should be concerned about it. Anyone who cares about the First Amendment needs to be concerned about that value behind it, that we're allowing free speech. My point would just be there's always been an invisible cancel culture that was actually stronger, which is just simply your column would be yanked or your show would be yanked. You just wouldn't continue. You know, I mean, you wouldn't get ratings. You'd be gone. And that happened quite a bit. And and then there were some cases that were due to politics and maybe a little story came of it. But now it's due to social media, which means other people are talking. And that's the component that I think is difficult to just label it with a label like cancer cul- cancel culture. And I think it gets overused. And I think that people are making careers over anti-cancel culture and, and exaggerating it. So while I don't think it's entirely, you know, without problems, I just think it's over-exaggerated. And that's the the main point. But um, I could have done a whole show on that. I just wanted to address a lot of the problems at once because things are happening so fast that, um, you know, in the time it takes to do a historical analysis of things, we're not going to have an episode for everything that occurs. It's just not going to happen unless I can do this every day (laughs) with your graces. Maybe I can, but um, until I can, you know, I I thought I'd do one catch-all episode in that. You know, it's hard because you want to prove your case, so you want to have enough historic examples to say something, and you want to cover all the issues that are occurring at the time. But I guess the biggest thing that I could have said is it's not just so much that, like, we've had problems before, but that the answers weren't clear before either. Like, you're not much better than Thomas Jefferson in regards to not loving the fact that there are media outlets that are just extremely biased and just seem to be knocking, you know, one party or the other all the time. It was problematic for him. And that's why when I said, you know, uh, he said, the people can sort it out. And I said, we hope. I mean, I really feel like that's what folks like Jefferson and Washington and Abigail Adams were all thinking. Like, we don't actually have a solution to this problem. We think that free speech is the only way to go, of course, as a value, but it doesn't mean that there aren't problems. And what do you do when there's just someone constantly shouting, either in ink or in voice, and they're not reasonable? And there are a few people who aren't thinking enough and are going to be swayed. That problem's never gone away. I hope I conveyed that in the cast, but sometimes I listen and I say, well, 
you put a lot into that and, uh, you know, I almost need a, a second cast to really hammer in the point. But that's part of what this is for. I want to thank you for supporting me. Thanks for listening. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts.